welcome and thanks for coming. Um, this is the second book launch that we have for the Hellenic Observatory this term already. Uh, so, uh, of course, we have different kinds of events, but never before have we been emulating a kind of TV chat show to say that uh, you've got a book to sell, uh, and so there's a book launch kind of thing. Anyway, it's uh, genuinely my very great pleasure to um, host Sotiris Zataluthis. Sotiris uh, is an alumnus of the school, as others in the audience are, and um, uh, completed his PhD, which has now led to uh, this very important uh, book. Sotiris is going to tell us something about the book and the arguments, and then we're going to have a Q&A, uh, and we also then have the advantage of a reception afterwards. So uh, there was everything in this mixture which we could uh, wish for. I'd say by way of introduction, you can see, or you could see on the previous slide, that Sadir is, is uh, a lecturer in politics at Loughborough University and breaking news about to move to Birmingham uh, University. Uh, but what I wanted to emphasise by way of introduction was that Sotiris' uh, book, to me, addresses some very important themes, issues, for the Europe and the European Union, in the sense that, as we know, over time, the European Union has moved into the area of structural reform, soft law, soft programmes of reform, etc., so not just not law, directives, uh, immediate legal obligations, but the promotion of a policy agenda. And the European Employment Strategy is one such agenda par excellence. It's also important because uh, Sotiris addresses a couple of cases which I know he's going to describe as critical cases, difficult cases, Portugal and Greece. So if the European Union can engineer, promote uh, domestic reform in Lisbon and Athens, uh, then kind of like the Frank Sinatra voice, as it were, they can, if they can do it there, they can do it anywhere, uh, is the kind of song that comes to mind. Uh, so it's a tremendously important uh, study in terms of the issues that it raises uh, for the European Union and its cohesiveness. So Tiris has promised to speak for approximately 35 minutes. Uh, there will be plenty of time for discussion. And Sotiri, you're very welcome indeed. Welcome back. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Kevin. And it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, it's a room, it's a room uh, with uh, many memories. Uh, mostly good. <laughs> so... Um, the uh, without further ado, and I would also like to uh, thank uh, the Helen Observatory for um, the very great care for the event and uh, for hosting me here. Uh, so, without further ado, that's the cover of the book. Yeah. And uh, yes, and that's the outline of uh, my presentation. Um, just to. Um, very briefly, I'm going to speak about what is the question, why the question is important, what is the puzzle, what are the case studies, the framework, the findings, and the implications. I'll try to make it uh, as least academic as possible, but I don't know if I will achieve it. I don't know if I will achieve it. Okay. So, the question. 
the question is a much broader question, as Kevin said. It's not so much about Greece or Portugal. Um, it's more about the EU. So the question, uh, the broad question is, under what conditions can the European employment strategy uh, influence member states' employment policy? Uh, what, what can we expect to see and then wait for some change in employment policy at the domestic level? Um, Kevin mentioned about the European employment strategy and how this is, if you like, a new fashion in the EU. Instead of directives, we also have soft law recommendations. And in a way, we also see this, if you like, fashion also now with the Troika and the bailouts. So you have to sign a, 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 a Troika bailout. You have some certain, if you like, legal requirements, but the way you're going to do it is a bit more flexible. There's not like a directive or a law that says to Greece or Portugal that you have to do this kind of reform. So the elements uh, which... Uh, emerged in the EU in the mid-90s and uh, we have seen them, if you like, being spread in other areas as well. It's about agreeing common goals. So what we like to do as Europe. So for instance, I'm going to talk in uh, some next slides, one of the common goals in the EU is to promote employment, to increase employment or to promote gender equality. And that's a general goal that everybody has to do. How are we going to do it? It's uh, based on, if you like, some uh, ideas of best practice. Okay, uh, since the, uh, the argument was that since the EU is accused by a lot of uh, uh, northerners, but also Eurosceptics in general, that it's telling too much uh, stuff to member states, they say, well, you know, it's not going to be our opinion, it's going to be based on the best practice. So, for instance, if we find a program in Sweden or Denmark, um, or in any other country, usually these two, uh, that it works amazingly well, we're going to say that, you know what, why don't you promote what the Swedes, the Swedes are doing there in employment policy? Not because the EU is saying so, but because the EU thinks that this is the best, if you like, practice. So we're all trying to become amazingly uh, good or the best, if you like. Uh, the idea here was that, well, these objectives were going to be translated into... Uh, domestic policies, member states' policies with national reports. So member states will report back to the EU how they would try to achieve best practice. So for instance, if let's say Sweden again, I'm mentioning the example of Sweden, has achieved to promote, let's say, complete equal pay for women and men, member states have to write in a report how they think that they can provide equal pay for women and men in their own country. In their own way, if you like. This report would be peer-reviewed, um, a term that probably it's uh, uh, bringing nightmares to academics, uh, uh, peer-reviewed peer but not in the traditional way of peer-review. So we would read your report and we would give you some recommendations uh, on what to do. So you're telling us that you're going to do X, Y, Z, but maybe you can do A, B, C, maybe. Maybe it's better for you. And in addition to that, there would be some money from uh, the EU, from especially the European Social Fund, ESF, to support these goals. So what is the puzzle? This is, if you like, the broader framework of the EU and how the EU works. So my case studies, Greece and Portugal, as Kevin mentioned, were the least likely or critical case studies. What do we mean by that? We, we mean that, theoretically speaking, we would be very, very surprised to expect any change. It would be unlikely to have any change in Greece and Portugal for a number of reasons. Uh, according to studies uh, uh, throughout, uh, if you like, the mid-2000s, uh, Greece and Portugal have been labeled as belonging to the world of neglect. So these two countries, along, uh, by the way, with France, 
and sometimes Belgium, but it's uh, debated, uh, they don't comply to the EU law. Not because they don't want to, or because they cannot, but usually because, if you like, they have a culture where they neglect law-abiding. So, for instance, having a law in Greece or Portugal doesn't mean much in terms of practice, uh, and we cannot take it for granted that this law will be implemented. Uh, for those of you that are from Greece and Portugal, you know what I mean. Um, so, uh, the idea here is that, well, if these two countries don't really comply to what comes from the EU in terms of legal requirements, how can we expect them to comply to something that is not even legal, something that is best practice? The second thing, the second, if you like, reason for not expecting any change in Greece and Portugal is that, well, okay, even if they didn't have this, if you like, culture of neglecting law, um, or even if they wanted, they, they could not comply to the EU because they had high misfit, a term that we use in Europeanization, uh, in terms of the gap. So there was a very big gap, let's say, between what the EU was saying and these two countries. So it's easier, let's say, for Germany or France or Sweden to comply with something that comes from the EU uh, because maybe they have the money, maybe they have the know-how, maybe they have uh, experience. While Greece and Portugal, they are uh, underdeveloped welfare states, poor countries, uh, problematic, uh, if you like, welfare state compared to the EU average, so very big gap. Weak and inefficient administrations, well, even if they didn't have the gap and even if they wanted to do it, well, uh, we know that there's a long tradition of weak state capacity, a topic that Kevin has written uh, and still writing extensively on uh, how problematic can be uh, uh, administration uh, in uh, Greece. Uh, we said also about the gaps in legislation and practice. So if a country has uh, a problematic legal system that is not properly applied, how can we expect to comply to something coming from outside? Uh, another problem, if, if you see there are many, you see there are many reasons. Uh, another problem is that both countries have weak civil society. So, for instance, uh, we know that in Britain, one of uh, the reasons why uh, the public sector provides much more generous pay for women is from the strong uh, trade union or the tr strong feminist, women, uh, feminist trade union, if you like, which was uh, either threatening or actually going forward in terms of uh, uh, the EU court to force Britain to comply with the legislation. Or we know that in some countries, like Germany or Northern Europe, we have a very strong environmental civil society, that, or even in Britain, where they say, well, you know what, there is something at the EU that may help us. Well, we know that in both countries, the so-called uh, civil society is weak. Some people say that we don't even have civil society, or some people say that the civil society that we have in both country, countries is state-dependent. So, for instance, to have an NGO in Greece or Portugal, you need to have some, uh, some uh, connections or some funding or from some support from the state. Well, that's not a proper independent civil society that represents the interests of some groups and not just the state. Institutional change is considered unlikely. Both countries have been labeled, labeled historically uh, up until the crisis as, if you like, cases of path dependence, a term that we use in political science to indicate that we don't have so much change. So the way, let's say, the welfare state was in the 80s, we would expect to see it after 20 years because these countries are not, if you like, experimenting with their public policy or the welfare state. However, uh, preliminary research uh, taken uh, in the beginning of uh, uh, my research, uh, which if you like, we started in the PhD and uh, 
has been culminated in this book, was, saying, was showing that, well, actually, yeah, okay, all these reasons exist, but actually something is going on in Greece and Portugal. Something is happening that seems to be in line with what the EU is saying. So, the areas that we, 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 uh, we are looking in this book is, if you like, the, so, the so-called three-headline policies of the European employment service. So the first one is the activation of the unemployed through public employment services. This is hap- something that was already happening in the US with the uh, uh, Clinton administration, something that the new labor caught up, and actually something that, if you like, the EU was inspired by, the new labor, uh, according to um, the advisor of Tony Blair, Roger Little, in Europe, he was saying that the Downing Street was very uh, pro- uh, key to promote this goal of activation. What does this mean in very simple terms? Well, usually, traditionally, we have the passive approach to unemployment. Somebody is unemployed, comes to the public employment service, the job center, and says, I'm unemployed. What can you do to me? They may take some benefits, they may take some uh, training, etc. The idea here is that instead of having a passive approach, we promote some kind of active approach, which means that actually the public employment service is preemptive and works faster in advance uh, to, let's, yes, so uh, to provide active support. So what does this mean? It meant that the public employment service, so for just to call also the name of the organization, so OAED in Greece and EFP, in uh, Portugal, they would provide a personalized support, tailor-made, so not just like mass programs for unemployed, not just like, I don't know, 100,000 subsidies for 100,000 jobs in uh, um, a training program or something like that. It will be personalized according to what the people liked, what the people wanted to do. Um, And that had to be done within six months of the uh, registered unemployed, especially if you were young. So if you were uh, a young unemployed, you had to be on the, if you like, high priority because we want to activate young people. We have more hope for the young people than the older ones. Uh, and twin, uh, within 12 months for the all other unemployed. So that meant a massive change for countries like Greece and Portugal, but also not only them, but in general, where they were just expecting for somebody to show up in the office. So now, as soon as somebody was unemployed, they had to mobilize and provide a specially, if you like, tailor-made program to the unemployed. The gender equality uh, case was another, if you like, uh, I would say, uh, transformative goal in terms of what the EU should promote and what member states should do, was that uh, actually now we're not going to be promoting gender equality, we're going to mainstream gender equality. So. All, public, all areas of public policy should promote gender equality. So, for instance, is the tax system promoting gender equality? Is education promoting gender equality? Is transportation alleviating, let's say, uh, the way the transportation policy is designed? Is it helping young women, mothers, unemployed, etc., to access uh, whatever they want to access? Is it gender-friendly? And also, that would require that we will evaluate and monitor the impact of public policies on gender equality. So what does it mean, for instance, uh, a certain pension scheme that we have in Greece or Portugal? Does a pension 
uh, has uh, the way the pension is designed has a never negative impact on young women, for instance, in terms of taxation. So here we're talking about a holistic approach where gender equality becomes a concern for all, if you like, uh, areas of public policy. It sounds like a Herculean task. It sounds like something very, very difficult. And as you can see here, we see that the influence here of the Nordic countries, right? Here you see uh, we have, we're trying to, if you like, promote a model, you know, best practice that we said in the beginning, that actually we are creating a gender equal society and public policy and not just a little measure somewhere there that's just equal. Uh, another key goal was the gender equality in employment policy. So, okay, we have gender mainstreaming everywhere, but what are we doing about uh, childcare facilities, flexible work ar working arrangements? We know from research that one of the key obstacles for women to enter or re-enter the labor market is having to care for somebody, either a child or their parents or elderly. Uh, so uh, the EU was saying that, well, you know what? We have to actually push this goal and we have to achieve a 90% coverage for children who are between 3 and 6 and 33 for 0 to 3. So the states should, or the state, if you like, the public policy should help women reconcile work and family life. Having a child should not be perceived as a penalty for working women or men even, uh, and vice versa. And also the elimination of breakups. So uh, one of the key problems that we have in all European countries, even in the Nordic ones, is that we know that women who are equally educated to the equivalent of male, let's say a person who has done a bachelor's degree or a master's degree, when they end up working, they don't get paid the same money for the same job or work. So why this is happening? Very briefly, it is a, you know, we can have like a three-hour lecture on that, but very briefly, we know that the employers will cost, if you like, will measure the cost of maternity leave or of a career break or maybe two or three or four maternity leaves. So they will say, well, we know that the males won't go from the office. They will be here full-time for the next 10 years. We don't know that about women. So we'll try to give them a bit less space so we can kind of balancing out. Um, another problem is the employment gap, but especially in the EU, was about pay gap. The third three area that the EU was promoting was flexicurity. Best practice, so flexicurity in Denmark and Netherlands, well... The EU uh, was saying since mid-2000, well, you know what, forget this eternal debate between left and right about flexibility or security. We can provide both. We can be amazingly, if you like, middle way and have flexicurity. So we can provide flexible and reliable contracts. We can provide lifelong learning. So, for instance, why in Netherlands or Sweden people don't care whether they will be unemployed or not? Because... Well, they care, but why it's not if you like a, such a big if you like threat? Because they know that if they get unemployed, they have immediately provision of lifelong learning, good quality training that will make them find another job. Also, they have effective active labor market policy, and also they have a, a, a very modern and adequate security system. For instance, in Sweden, you may get, get up to 90% of your previous salary as unemployment benefit. So the EU was saying, well, Sweden or uh, Netherlands or Denmark, they have a very flexible labor market. It's easy to fire and hire people. They don't, they don't have enough protection. But the people do not worry so much because the state is there to provide training to them and if you like transition to a new job. Or if they cannot find a job immediately, they can provide them adequate income support or social support. In Greece and Portugal, the focus was mainly on the first one. 
and you can understand, uh, or I hope you can guess why the two or three or four were not so, if you like, high on the priority. Well, if a country like Greece and Portugal is relatively poor, it doesn't have a proper and modern and adequate social security system, it doesn't have effective ALMPs, uh, lifelong learning, well, maybe it would be too ambitious to focus on these three things. Uh, and also we know that both countries had traditionally a very uh, problematic market economy, uh, political economy. So in both countries we had a very, if you like, a, a sector of the economy which was very protected, public sector, big corporations, and a sector of the economy where it was jungle capitalism. So we had, you had no, no contracts, you had no social security, you had no, uh, if you like, uh, any access to welfare benefits. For instance, even today, we know that in Greece, the unemployment rate probably is a bit lower because a lot of people work without registered, being registered anyway. They work in the so-called black or gray economy. So the EU uh, said to Greece, why don't you try to reduce the protection of the, if you like, the secure place and also try to, if you like, provide more support to the outsiders. For instance, people who work uh, in the retail industry, hotel industry, tourist industry, etc. So, speaking a bit academically, but very briefly, the two uh, variables that we had was the cause, independent variable, the ES. So the ES was saying all these things to Greece uh, and Portugal and other countries as well, uh, through guidelines, recommendation, and money. And the dependent variable was change in member states. If the EU had an effect on Greece and Portugal, we would see a change of national policy, which would be in accordance to the ES. So not just any change, but change that would promote flexicurity, gender mainstreaming, uh, pay gaps, reduction of pay gaps, activation, etc. The indicators of change uh, would be, if you like, specific to the policy areas, right? So we would expect to see, as I said before, some changes related to what the EU was saying. Not just, you know, anything comes, you know. Uh, a minister says that, oh, the EU uh, told us that we should do activation, and we're doing activation. Well, is it actually promoting preventative approach, or is it actually doing uh, change from passive to active? Another problem that we have similar to that is that when we study the reforms of the Troika, the so-called Troika, um, we don't know whether it was a Troika, whether it was a government, we don't know whether it was a change that was in accordance to the EU. Um, so we have to do research on that. And uh, my piece of advice uh, to uh, people who don't focus on these policy areas is that never trust a politician that says that, oh, I'm doing that because of this. Never trust that this is correct. We have to double check whether that's actually happening. The theoretical framework was Europeanization, uh, a topic that, if you like, is, the, is a framework that tries to understand the impact on member states. And the hypothesis, the broader hypothesis, was that if this was happening, if we had Europeanization, it would happen through three main avenues. Policy learning, domestic empowerment of uh, entrepreneurs and uh, financial conditionality. Policy learning is something that the literature has indicated as one of the key ways to change. Remember what we said in the beginning. The EU is trying to promote best practice. They don't tell us anything anymore what to do. They don't have a law. But they say, look, guys, we think that this is really good. You should do it. So the literature was saying, well, now member states learn. Greece and Portugal will go to the European Union, will chat with them, and they will end up having a learning process. They will learn that actually what is happening in Sweden, or Denmark, or Britain, or France is a good thing to do, and they will do it because they think 
that now they've changed their views and you know they can emulate, if you like, the best practices. Another way is that well, maybe policy makers don't learn really. So for instance, there are some policy makers, let's say an example, Tony Blair, Margaret Thatcher, whoever, that they have an agenda already, and they say, well, you know what? It's not me, it's the EU that says that. Uh, you know, what can we do now? You know, we have the Troika, that's not so much for the employment strategy, but you can, I'm, I'm pretty sure that people that follow Greek and Portuguese politics can have probably heard that many times. Well, you know, what can we do? This is the right thing to do. It's, but the idea here is that it's not learning because they already have the agenda here. Financial conditionality, well, if you have to take some money to do these reforms and uh, you're not interested in learning and you don't really have an agenda in advance, so when you take the minister, the Ministry of Labor, you don't have an agenda, but you actually care to take the money from the EU, that's the final, if you like, third way for the EU to have an influence. In terms of uh, methods and evidence, well, I'll just uh, focus only on the most interesting and sexy part was that it was based on 44 interviews uh, with key policy makers, um, including ministers, deputy ministers, uh, policy, uh, policy advisors, experts, trade unions, etc. in both countries. Um, a lot of months spent in Lisbon uh, and Athens. Uh, obviously after the Easter break when it was warmer. So uh, the general finding, the general finding was that, well, despite both countries being least likely cases, Europeanization happened. That was one of the big moments, right? When Europeanization did happen, because we were wondering whether Europeanization ever happened. So, uh, and how it, did it happen? It happened through the ESF conditionality in Greece and empowerment of policy makers in Portugal. No policy learning. Surprisingly, according to the literature, but I see from your eyes that a lot of you don't think it's surprising, both Greek and Portuguese policymakers did not learn from the EU. They didn't go into a process of sharing experiences and best practices and uh, adopting the best models. So what happened? Before the ES, both countries were not providing any activation. Gender equality was almost non-existent in, in terms of employment policy. Remember that gender equality and employment policy is not about abortion, divorce, etc. It's more about uh, access to education, to training, to subsidies for women. For instance, in Portugal, no active uh, labor market was given for women. All training was given for males before the, before the, the, the ES. Uh, there was no balance between security and flexibility. Remember we said that we had two, if you like, distinct zones. The protected sector of insiders and the non-protected sector of outsiders. Um, so, for instance, now you can understand maybe why a lot of people before the crisis thought that getting a job in the public sector was a dream. The dream was not that uh, they had some kind of, if you like, uh, uh, agenda on public sector. It was that, well, they wanted to avoid this, uh, if you like, unprotected sector of the economy with no contracts or with uh, limited contracts or limited protection, etc. So, overall, we can say that both countries were at odds with the EU and the ES. Well, after the ES, uh, we had a change in all, almost all policy areas. So, public employment services were providing individualized and preemptive support to the unemployed. The, both countries were conforming to what the EU was saying. 
So now, if you go to a Greek or Portuguese job center, you'll have to speak to a psychologist, to a counselor, you'll have to speak to special educational advisors where they will give, provide you, a, a, if you like, individualized template and agreement, a contract, you'll have to sign a contract where it will be, if you like, given to you within six months if you are young and 12 months if you are old, uh, and they're going to uh, provide you, if you like, a plan in terms of what you're going to do afterwards. You're going to ask me, yeah, but are they finding job afterwards? That's beyond the scope of the study. It's about what the public employment policy is doing. Um, you see, I, I covered my, um, my, my methodological problems. Uh, so, uh, care facilities were greatly expanded. Uh, in both countries, uh, if you like, uh, 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 nurseries, creches, etc. for the elderly were uh, greatly expanded every year uh, until the crisis at least. It was one of the areas where, uh, if you like, uh, we had a continuous and steady expansion of public policy. We also had flexible working conditions for women. So, for instance, in both countries, we had the introduction of a much more stronger, uh, if you like, part-time arrangement or flexible working arrangement for women. We had some efforts which were limited to pay gaps, and also flex security was discussed as um, a model for both Greece and Portugal. In Greece, less so, and we're going to discuss exactly what. In terms of change, okay, it changed, but how much? Well, activation was higher, so all countries were, if you like, properly activated, by public employment policy. Reconciliation more, pay gaps less, and flex security less. Change in Portugal was higher than Greece. So Greece still remained, if you like, uh, um, an unlikely case and still remained, if you like, uh, somehow disappointment, especially when I was doing the interviews and a lot of the people who were involved with the EU policy making, uh, they didn't know exactly what was the EU policy making about. Uh, so um, uh, in uh, Portugal, the public promise service transformed. In 2001, uh, the EFP of Portugal was included as the best practice for all the EU. They were saying they, they invited people from uh, Britain uh, and other countries to see how Portugal transformed the public employment service there uh, in order to, if you like, uh, see how you can achieve this change to activation. Increase medium change accommodation, so they did the changes, but actually they did not transform the policy. It's not, it's not based on, it's not, in Greece, we don't have a model based in activation. Reconciliation. Uh, happened, the expansion of care facilities happened in Portugal with national funds, while in Greece with EU funds. In Greece, even today, a lot of nurseries depend on EU funds. If the EU fund uh, is not approved, uh, you may have heard stories of uh, um, nurseries not being paid or teachers not being paid and waiting for the money. One of the key reasons is because it's not so much the austerity, because uh, it's related on EU funds. Flex security reform completed in Portugal, while quick abandonment in Greece. So, in both countries, in all these reforms, uh, the EES was pushing forwards, forward uh, Europeanization. I have one slide per country, very briefly. So, in Greece, we have the ESF conditionality for the main reason that, well, nobody tried to learn in Greece from the EU, and nobody can, uh, and uh, to my surprise, and if you like that, if you like, it also goes very well to what's happening now in Greece, nobody also had an agenda with what to do the employment policy. So when you were talking to people involved in policy making, uh, they were saying, they were saying that, for instance, uh, I remember when I was presenting part of my work here some years ago, one of the key ministers in, uh, involved in Greece to 
promote these issues, uh, told me that employment policy doesn't matter. It's all only about growth. If you have growth, everything's okay. So um, there was no, if you like, a particular agenda of, if you like, reform or content. We want to take the government, we want to win the elections and do this in Greece. No party in Greece, both Pasoko, no New Democracy, had, if you like, a certain agenda to say, when we will be in power, we want to do that. We want to achieve this with the Greek welfare state. So, what happened was that, uh, according to the key ministers involved in, uh, in the Greek government during that period, well, in 2000, they get a phone call from the Commission, actually the Commission representation Athens, and they say, look, if you don't do activation and individualization in the public employment service, no EU funds from the ESF. So by 2001, you have to make sure that when the EU supports something in Greece, it's based on activation, new program within six months for the young and 12 months for uh, the, the others, the, the, the rest of the employee. So according to um, a deputy minister involved in the reform, you cannot do anything. It's money. You, you are relied on this money. You have to take this money. You cannot afford not to take the money from uh, Europe. So, uh, panic, panic attack, other phone calls, and uh, actually they did the reform. It took them, uh, it took them approximately two and a half years. So it was urgent. So, uh, uh, three laws were passed. Uh, so. Uh, the idea here is that, well, we're going to promote activation and individualization, and we're going to give more funding for women. Women will be now, and were in Greece since 2001, a target group. More money to women, better support to women. Why? Because we know that we have a massive pay gap, employment gap between men, men and women in Greece. In uh, the flexicurity case, even though we had a group of people who were interested to promote the agenda, Tsiturides was, and, and it's an interesting story by the way, Tsiturides is, uh, was a minister of uh, New Democracy of Employment Policy, and Kukiadis was a, uni is, uh, a university professor, emeritus probably, uh, a university professor of law in uh, Aristotle Thessaloniki, of, um, in the University of uh, Thessaloniki, in, Athens, in Thessaloniki. Uh, apparently, Tsiturides studied law in uh, Thessaloniki, and Kukiadis was teaching there. So, there was some kind of, if you like, familiarity. And also, Tsiturides, by the way, uh, for those of you that are not so uh, keen on Greek politics, Kukiadis was a long member of PASOK, the opposite, opposite party, and he, was, he has written a lot of books on social Europe. So, a guy who would, if you like, if we can find a, a person that would qua uh, qualify as an academic who also has a political agenda, it's Kukiadis. So Tsiturides said, well, if I try to promote a labor reform on my own as a new democracy, it won't happen. Trade unions, opposition, etc. But if I appoint Kukiadis as the head of the commission for the labor market reform, maybe we can try to pull something together as consensual uh, agenda. Tsiturides had also uh, a long uh, career in the commission. Uh, he got back there, now he's there, back after he was not re-elected. So, Tsiturides uh, also could, if you like, relate to what the EU was saying. Yeah, let's try to promote it in a kind of cooperative approach. Both parties try to agree on something. We, we have a committee of experts. Let's try to do that. As soon as Kukiadis says, I'm ready to publish my report, 
The government says, which report? <laughs> there is no report. <laughs> the report will not be published. Kukiati says, but just a minute, you hired me to, hi- to write a report. Uh, no, actually, we cannot publish the report. It's a, a report from the Ministry of Labor, so it goes unpublished. Kukiati says, no, I will publish it. What happened? He published it in a blog of his own, as a PDF file. The report has never been published by the Greek state, even though it was a commission running for more than uh, six months. The, ne- the next uh, minister, uh, Mrs. Fanny Pali Petralia, said, the Greek labor market, there's no problem with the Greek labor market. We have no problem about flexibility or security. Everything is great. So I don't know what you're talking about. And also the report, we don't need it. We had elections that year, so it was a bit uh, a political uh, dangerous thing to do. So no change happened in Greece in that respect. In Portugal, in Portugal, before uh, the PS won the power in um, 1995, we had a group of people who were very keen to change the welfare state in, uh, in, uh, in Portugal. According to one person involved there who was also the Minister for Employment, told me that we wanted to change Portugal from a welfare society to a society with a welfare state. So this agenda, obviously, I was not taking their opinion face value. They had written it in books, in manifestos of the parties, etc. So you could see that the, public, the Socialist Party, the equivalent of PASOK in Greece, had a very strong agenda on what Portugal should do. So one of the things that were available both in public documents and interviews was that they want to promote to reform the public uh, employment service in Portugal because, as in Greece, there were a lot of cases of corruption. A lot of people end up with having holidays, with EU money, uh, houses, cars, etc. So they want to reform that to stop uh, corruption. They want to promote gender equality and implement a labor market reform. Oops. So. Uh, what happened was that for them it was the perfect wedding, the perfect scenario. There are some people who want to promote change in public policy and welfare state, and suddenly the EU says that you know what, uh, if you want to do your country following the best practice, you should do X, Y, Z. So for them, according to them, the EU and especially the ES was the perfect tool to fend off opposition within their party and the opposition from outside. So for instance, uh, within the party, they would say, why we need to change it, like we were going to upset our uh, existing, if you like, policies. Outside the party, the center-right party would always accuse the PS as being fiscally irresponsible, ex- spending too much money, you know, these leftists spending money everywhere. So for them, they were saying, it's not us. I mean, we want to reform, but actually it's the EU as well. How can you be against the EU? How can you be against what the EES is saying? That's the best model. You know, activation, gender equality, flexicurity. This is what the EU is about. So how can you be against the EU? Remember that we talk about two very pro-European countries, right? You cannot say that in the UK, for instance. You cannot say to Cameron, how dare you saying that uh, we need to change the immigration policy and put a cap, uh, because that's the best thing. If the EU says so, it's good. So the policy change was incorporating the, the EU policy, but in a way, it was used instrumentally by these people who wanted to do the changes anyway. Two more slides. So discussion from the finding, and this is something that I think uh, is relevant also today in both countries. It seems that ownership, believing in the reforms, wanting to do the reforms, is much more important and effective than just being obliged to. So somebody who says, you know what, I really want to change the welfare state, will end up having more, if you like, higher change from the EU than somebody who just says, oh yeah, you know, we have to take this money. Okay, let's do something. 
to take the money. So both countries did not learn from the EU. So I would also suggest, and if you like, that's something that uh, you know uh, it was very relevant. I think it would be unlikely to expect uh, these countries to learn from the EU even in the future. But obviously, that's. Uh, a discussion. Uh, change was higher in public sector, so public employment services, reconciliation, care, care facilities, and private sector. We saw that in both countries, the private sector was uh, unwilling to change. And this is something that exists in both countries, I would say, from especially from some uh, uh, public figures that say, well, it's only always the public sector that is harming the country, and the private sector is like efficient, amazing, etc. We actually see that in both countries, Private sector is very, very resistant to change. Private sector doesn't want to change. It's something interesting that I think a lot of the literature sometimes neglects. We assume that the public sector is like this kind of big elephant which is very rigid, very uh, inflexible. Actually, change happens happen more in the public sector than in the private sector. Uh, and also, that uh, if you like one of the findings and one of the discussions is that, you know, even in these two, two, two countries that, if you like, they are unlikely to see Europeanization in soft law, we saw change. What are the implications of these findings? Well, as, as we said before, if, let's say, today the EU, Troika, Merkel, I don't know who, the opposition, whatever, expect to learn from the EU, so if they say, you know what, we're going to grab 10 people from Greece and from Portugal, we're going to give them a nice seminar or a nice discussion, and they will learn, you know, they will say, okay, guys, we have to change the way. I would say that probably it would be likely to be disappointed. I wouldn't expect policymakers to be prone or eager to learn from the EU. Another implication is that, well, contrary to what uh, the press has been saying for the last many years, since 2009, 10, uh, I wouldn't, uh, the research shows that uh, Southern Europe is not a lost cause. Yes, they have problems, they have issues, it's difficult, but even in these countries, the EU can influence them. So, for instance, I would say to a German uh, voter reading the bill that it's not as bad as you think. Yeah, it may be bad, but actually, if the EU tries, or if the EU, if you like, uses the right tools, they can promote change in Greece and Portugal. Even though it seems that, uh, and if you like, one of the interesting things when I was uh, writing the final chapters of this book was that uh, it was, if you like, one of the findings of conditionality was something that, if you like, it was first put forward in a way in, in these findings and this research. Until then, nobody was talking about ESF conditionality, but they were talking about learning, socialization, etc. So while I was writing these uh, last pages of the book, uh, we would hear from Angela Merkel saying that uh, we are ha happy to help Greece and Portugal or Ireland provided they meet some conditions. So the term of conditionality and the tool of conditionality is becoming the main game in the EU in terms of uh, how to influence <coughs> countries. The Troika deals, the bailouts are a game of conditionality. You're going to do this, I'm going to be rewarded by some money, by some haircut, by some whatever you, whatever that is you want. However, I would say that um, it's something that I don't think leads the EU in the right direction. Yes, maybe we can push Greece, Portugal, Ireland, whoever else in help to do changes, but actually if we really want to promote Europeanization, if we really want to help and promote a more cohesive EU, an EU that is much more similar and diverse, and if you like, better working EU, uh, it depends on ownership and empowerment of pro-reform elites. So at the end of the day, um, 
It's up to domestic actors. What will happen in uh, European countries, it doesn't matter so much about the EU, contrary to what we hear from a lot of academics that they say, oh, you know what, these countries are just doing what the EU is telling them. Miss Merkel is an angel or she's Satan herself, so it's the Troika that does whatever it does. Well, actually, it's up to domestic actors whether they will use the EU as an opportunity or as a threat or they will neglect it. So at the end of the day, if you like, it's, that's one of the interesting findings of the book. We started talking about Europeanization and we conclude by saying that it's up to national policy makers. It's up to the people we elect, we vote, uh, that get government positions. It's up to them what's going to happen in terms of making or breaking policy change. So, for those of you that will vote in Greece and Portugal or even other countries, be careful. <laughs>